In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will continue the study of Daniel 7. If you guys remember last time, we said that Daniel have seen three different scenes. And last time we talked about the first scene. The first scene was in the first eight verses when he saw all the different kingdoms. He have seen Babylonian, he have seen Persia, he have seen Greece and Romans. And the, the most interesting kingdom was the final kingdom. And last time we talked about how the final kingdom could be understood as two different things, either before the coming of the first Christ, uh, the, the first coming of Christ, or the coming of the second coming of Christ. And we said that I want you to keep this principle in your head, is that the beginning is similar to the end. The first coming of Christ is similar to the second coming of Christ in a lot of ways. And what happened to Israel in the first coming, probably what's going to happen to the whole church in the second coming. Okay? So, and we talked about many different examples, how they are very similar. We said God sent uh, somebody to prepare the way. Eli John the Baptist in the first coming. Elijah and Enoch will be in the second coming. We talked about the, the, the persecutions against the people of God that's going to happen in both. We talked about Antichus Epiphanius, who came and he desecrated the temple, and he tried to change the times, change the, the laws. And this is probably what the Antichrist is going to do. So there's a lot of similarities between the first coming, the, the, the events that lead up to the first coming, and the events that lead up to the second coming. Why is that important? Because even when our Lord Christ prophesizes in the gospel, you will see that the two events are always related. The first and the second coming are always related. Okay? So, we've talked about the first scene when Daniel saw the four kingdom. And the first scene was a, bit, was a bit difficult. People are killing each other. Kingdom are falling. Kingdom are rising. Kings are overcoming other kings. So it seems like the world is in chaos. The world is constantly in war. Okay? Now, Daniel is going to look and he's going to see heaven. So after he saw all the distress on earth, now he will start to see him. So let's see what he sees in verse 9. He says, I watch till thrones were put in place. He's now looking in heaven. And the ancient of days was seated. So he saw thrones, but one big throne in the middle, and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like a pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So the throne looked like it was carried by wheels, wheels of fire. A fiery stream issued, seems like a river of fire came out of the throne and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. The court, were, were, the court was seated and the, the books were open. So there's a big difference between what Daniel saw on earth and what Daniel saw in heaven. In the midst of all this darkness and war and issues that's happening in, in the world, it's almost clear when he looked in heaven, it seems like the heavenly courts are kind of being convened. God the judge is coming and sitting and all the saints sitting next to him on the thrones to judge him, to judge the world. The Antichrist 
is blaspheming against God on earth and the, the people of God seem so weak and the judge in heaven is sitting kida calmly trying to, eh, trying to judge the world. Who is the ancient of days? Okay, this is a bit yani, important to keep in mind. Some fathers like Hippolytus said the ancient of days is the God the Father. Okay? And that's why sometimes when you go to the icons, not in the Coptic Orthodox Church, you see some icons in other churches, you see them drawing the Father as an old, ancient man with, with white hair and all, and, and this. In the Orthodox Church, we're in, in the scripture, we see that the Father usually does not have form, does not have an image. Christ is the image of the Father. So that's why many of the fathers say that the ancient of days in this, in this specific vision, because there's another ancient of days coming, represents the Son. Okay? And he's eternal, and he's sitting on the throne to judge. So the two interpretations are also within the Orthodox Church. And there are some fathers said that the ancient of days is the Father, is the Father, some said he's the Son, but I'm just giving you both interpretations. They said he was closed with what? Ancient of days was closed with white as snow, his garment with as white as snow. What does that mean? This is symbolizes the absolute moral purity of God. And this is the same revelation that John saw in Batmus in the book of Revelation. This is the same revelation that Ezekiel seen. This is the same revelation that all those who prophesied about the second coming have seen. God is so pure, so holy, that he must judge sin. The holiness of God does not allow sin. And his hair was white, is a sign of the eternity of God, that God is eternal, the ancient of days. Okay? Be careful when we're talking about these images that the, that the saints see, they're all still images. They're still images to fit our own human perception. They're all still images to fit a, our own human perception. What are the other thrones that are around the throne of God? These are the thrones that could be the 24 priests that John saw in the book of Revelation. It could also be the disciples, us. If remember in Luke 22, 30, where it says, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the way, this is a huge difference between the earth and heaven. In earth here, we are purely stewards. That's it. God gives you a child, you're responsible for him or her. God gives you service, God gives you school, you're only a steward. In heaven, you are an owner. You own. You inherit. And that's a huge difference. This is an eternal inheritance. There's no such a thing that exists in the world. It only exists in heaven. And God's throne is what? Flaming fire. Flaming fire represents, by the way, the love of God. And the love of God is used as a way 
to reflect his judgment. And I'm going to explain to you how. But before we talk about the, the, the throne, the throne was carried by what? Four different wheels or four different creatures that we see in the book of Revelation. And this is the cherubim. And the word cherubim or karub means the burning ones. So fire represents purity, represents judgment, represents the love of God, represents purification. All this represented from a with fire. There is a river that came out of the throne, river of fire. Why is God's judgment is fire? Because people who choose to be far away from God, they will suffer because they are away from God. They will suffer because they are not enjoying His love. And those who are so close to the throne, they are on fire because of their love to God. They are on fire eh, because of their love to God. So the throne of God, the throne of God, His love becomes the means of how people experience judgment. How people experience judgment. Either we are consumed by His love and we, are, we, can, we cannot imagine being away from Him, or either we separate ourselves so much from him that the fire of love is away from us that we see the judgment of God of separation. He says 10,000 times 10,000 standing in front of him. By the way, 10,000 was the biggest known number in the ancient world. So he's saying 10,000 times 10,000, it's the square of the biggest number they know. So that's not a specific number. It's just he saw huge multitude and he could not give them an exact number. Okay? So it's like when somebody tells you, for example, uh, you know how much you, how much you love God, you'd be like billions and billions and billions. That's kind of what he's saying. Ten times, ten thousand times ten thousand. That's why St. Jerome said this was not intended to be a specific number of the servants of God, but only indicates a multitude too great for human computations. So we as human cannot count the amount of people standing in front of a stand in front of God. Here we all so what are all these multitude doing? They are praising God, they are talking to Him. And I want us to to kind of look at the word praise a bit differently. Sometimes when we look at the word praise on earth, we think of coming to midnight as Baha and just kind of praying some praying prayers to God and telling him how great you are but praise in heaven as some of the saints like Saint Jacob Struck said it's a it's a, the response to what I see God doing and what I see as knowing him more and more every day it's more of my conversation with him it's more of my conversation with him. I'll tell you guys something. In human relations, we have different types of conversation. You rebuke people, you confront them, you uh, yell at them, you hug them, you love them, right? And every once in a while you praise them. You're like, wow, this was great. The essence of the events that are happening, happening in heaven makes you have that one main type of communication, which is you're constantly praising God. 
I'm enjoying his love so much, I'm being immersed in him, that I am, I have nothing to say but, wow, I love you. That is the type of conversation that we're having with God in heaven. And I want us to look eh, at praise differently. Now here he says what? The books will be opened. The books will be opened. The court was seated and the books will be opened. The books usually in the scripture, it's almost like it represents the memory of God. Okay, all the deeds that human beings have done, all the words, all the thoughts of every person is written in a book in front of God. Saint Jerome said that the books are our conscience. The books are what? Our conscience. Your conscience constantly speak to you and tell you, forgive, give, offer care, be humble. Your conscience will tell you when you do something wrong. Our conscience, as Saint Jerome says, become what? The book that witnesses against us or for us. Books will be opened. That's a scary statement. That's a, a scary statement. Nothing I do goes unrewarded or unnoticed. Even a cold cup of water, even a smile, even being patient with somebody who speaks too much but want to be heard, even sacrificing my own, own will so I could try to maybe please others because of their needs. Nothing I do goes unnoticed. That's why in the Gregorian liturgy, if you guys remember, we speak about the altar. And what do we say about the altar? We say the heavenly talking altar. This altar is another book that witnesses for or against us. But I have to be careful. That's why in Ecclesiastes, the, the book that Solomon wrote at the end of his life, after he said vanity of vanity and everything, what did he say at the very last few verses? He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is the conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is the most important thing all of us, if you want to conclude your life, fear God and follow his commandments. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Behold, I'm about to stand before the judge. judge. So here, what Solomon is telling us, this is the end of all matters. This is the end of all wisdom. After he, he had like a hundred women in his life and richness and money and wisdom and all this stuff, he says the end of it, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep a, his commandments. And this, by the way, should give us a lot of comfort because the heaven is watching all the time. The heaven is watching all the time. And a lot of times, 
I take action based on what people, what pleases people. And here he's saying, all our actions are written in books in front of God. Obviously, as Daniel was watching the scene, there's something that's in his mind, which, how about the, how about the little horn that used to speak evil about God and used to blaspheme against God? What's going to happen to him? So he starts seeing the judgment that is being bestowed upon this horn about the Antichrist. Look at verse 11. I watched him because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. This horn is still, and we said this horn is Antichus Epiphanius, if it's before the first coming of Christ, or the Antichrist before the second coming. I, which, I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed, and given to the, burn, given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel was extremely disturbed because of the arrogance of that beast, for he looked and wanted to see what's happening. For he saw that this beast received his judgment. He was destroyed. But then he said something interesting. He said those other kingdom that was before the beast, so if, so if you take the beast to be the Roman kingdom, so he said the other kingdom before him, they were allowed to exist for a season, for a period. And that's what happened. If you think about the Roman Empire, for example. During the Roman Empire, a lot of the Greek, the Greek philosophy and the Greek knowledge still remained. They were not in charge of the world. They were not the most powerful. But yet, the philosophy remained. That's why the sign that was written on the cross of Jesus was written in Greek and Roman and in Hebrew. Greek still remained to be an important language in the world. Greek so God says, for a period of time, I will keep them, but they will have no authority. And this, in the midst of a lot of things we see right now, even in our culture, where maybe there's a lot of evil that's happening in the world. What the book of Daniel tells us, that God is in control. God reigns. Even when evil happens, God still allows it to happen. And that should give us peace that God is in control. Okay? God is still in control. Now he sees here another, another scene, and I want you to pay attention to this scene, because in it comes the most famous title of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, all nation, all language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Verse 13 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. When it says, I have seen one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. What does this look like? This looks like the first coming of Christ. Okay, he's coming on the clouds, right, to the Ancient of Days. It's almost like and they brought, they brought him near before him. Who brought, him before, who brought Christ near to the Father? 
okay, us. After his first coming and he offered his sacrifice, he was ascended, uh, ascended to heaven. Then to him was given dominion and glory. Then he became now his dominion, his throne, his judgment. Now is what, what was given. Like in the Philippians, to him was given the name above all names. To him was given uh, the name above all names. Let's get, uh, take this verses, get, uh, break them a little bit more. When, when Daniel said, he says, I saw a vision and one like the son of man. So he looked like a man, but he's much more than a man. He's riding on the cloud. He's to be worshipped. He's not a king, but he is God. He did not say the son of Israel. He did not say the son of Jacob. He said what? The son of man. Be careful, because this is, this is one of the arguments that some people use against Christianity. They say when Jesus referred to himself in the New Testament, he used to use the expression son of man, not the son of God, even though he used son of God in the, in the story of the blind man. But he said he liked to use the expression son of man. Why? A lot of kings in the ancient time, they used to think of themselves as son of, as the children of gods, son of gods. But the son of man was an extremely unique title from the book of Daniel that talks about the Messiah, the Christ, who's to be worshipped. This prophecy, by the way, is so unique. Moses said there will be a prophet like me, that you should listen to him. It does not talk in that explicit manner where he will be worshipped, where he's coming on the clouds. These are characteristics of God alone. So when our Lord Jesus Christ wants to talk about himself in the New Testament, he says what? The son of man. Look, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. He said when he was being asked, but he kept silence and, enter, and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what Matthew have used. This is what Luke has used. These, the signs of the Son of Man will appear. Then the sign of the... This is when he was talking about the second coming. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory in Matthew. So the, 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 the title, Son of Man, is a unique title for Christ. It is the most quoted title in the New Testament. The most quoted verse in the New Testament. And it is beautiful that God wants that title. He wanted to be identified with that title. He's saying, I have taken your nature. You know, there's always a question of how can you name God? How can you talk about his qualities? And God says, I am the son of man. I am sharing your nature. Even though I reign, I am powerful, but you're part of me. You're part, uh, you're part of me. And this passage, by the way, makes also the coming of the son of man universal. 
You know, it's actually mind-blowing. When you look at Daniel, you look at Isaiah, you look at Joel, you look at Ezekiel, all the Old Testament prophets spoke about a universal coming of Christ. And in the reality on the ground, the Jews have always thought of them to be, to be unique. They have their own identity. But all the prophets are talking about what a universal, all tongues, all languages. Here it says what? It says they brought him to the ancient of days. It's almost as if we have offered the son as a sacrifice to God the Father. It talks about the two advent of Christ. The first one, when he was brought up, ascended to heaven. And the second one, when he was given the glory and the dominion. Because the first coming, Christ emptied himself. He took the form of a servant to live among us. And we killed him. And then, now he's in heaven, ascended. And now, he's talking also about the second coming. All right? Hippolytus said, for, for as two advents of our Lord and Savior are indicated in the scripture, the one being the first advent in the flesh, which took place without honor by reason of, of his being made nothing. As Isaiah spoke of him previously saying, we saw him and, we had, and he had no form or beauty. But the second advent is announced as glorious when he shall come from heaven with the host of the angels and the glory of his father. And the prophet said, you shall see the king in glory. And I saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days. It's almost like when you see the, the scene right now, we start kind of getting a glimpse of the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. Even the fathers that believe the first scene that the ancient of, of, of days was the father, in the second scene that we just talked about now, they believe, uh, sorry, the, the, the fathers that think of the ancient of days to be the son in the first scene, in the second scene here, they say he's the father. Okay? And the son was lifted to him, and then we have the river of fire which represents the Holy Spirit. So we start seeing a glimpse of the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Obviously, Daniel is watching, and people are dying. Kingdoms are, are rising. Kingdoms are falling. Somebody blaspheming against Christ. The saints are being suffering. He's looking at all of this, and he's like, this is very disturbing. So he went to an angel next to him, and he asked him, explain to me what's happening. Then the angel is responding. He's telling him those great, great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So these are kings that came from the earth as we spoke about. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Here he's saying eternity of kingdom is emphatically given to the saints. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Remember, the fourth beast is the one that's occupying him because that's the one that started blaspheming against Christ, against God, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze. 
which devoured broken pieces and trembled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which, which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was great than his, than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he says, so he's repeating, he's telling, the, he's telling the angel, explain to me the vision I have seen about the four kingdoms, which we already explained when we went through them last time. Then the angel responded, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, shall be different from all other kingdoms. It's a unique kingdom. And it shall devour the whole earth, tremble it and break it in pieces. The ten, horn, ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from, its, from this kingdom and another, arise from, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from all the first ones. He shall subdue the three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change the times on law. Then the saints shall be given to, into his hands for a time and times and a half a time. For a time and times and a half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. By the way, in the second, in the second vision, when Daniel is repeating the first vision, he added few things. He says, what, he says this, this little animal, the animal that we saw, had claws of bronze. He's adding things that he did not mention in the first day, in the first thing. And he started harassing the saints and persecuting them. And by the way, this is what happened, as we mentioned last time with Antichus Epiphanius, where he tried to change the times and the seasons of the Jewish law. He also tried to change the feasts. And this is what we said, what's going to happen with the Antichrist. He's going to try to change the law of God, and he's going to try to change the feasts. And he will harass the saints. If you guys remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, what does it say about the Antichrist? It says, and he causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or in their forehead, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So even simple transactions as selling and buying, the beast will make it hard. And you might ask yourself, why is Antichrist opposing the saints? Opposing the, opposing the people of God. It's very simple. Because when he comes and he tries to change the laws, try to change the, the seasons, who's going to oppose him? The saints, the people of God. And he will be inspired by Satan to destroy the people of God. And the Bible said that God will allow the saints to be persecuted by him. So it's important for us to understand this because as we see things are being changed, whether now or, or later, things about even simple timing, simple fees, simple conviction people have, we start understanding where we're going. We start understanding where we're going. And now we're starting seeing a lot of changes that we have never expected to see anywhere else at any time. Recently I heard somebody 
giving a statement to the Congress and they're saying abortion is moral. Never expected a day what we would hear that statement. Yes, it might be needed when a, the woman's health in danger, but to say it's moral. Now we see people trying to destroy the essence of the family. And if somebody speaks, they persecute them. I was telling them last week, there came a time where it was easy to be Christian. As time goes on, it will be harder and harder to become Christian. And a lot of the stars will be falling. It means that those believers themselves, some of them will give up their faith. And he said for a time, times and a half a time. It means for three and a half years, the Antichrist will persecute the people of God. And also if you remember Antichus Epiphanius, we said he ruled for seven years, but from the desecration of the temple until his end was about three and a half years. And this, we see this also in the book of Revelation in 13.5, where the Antichrist will rule for about three and a half years. And also, by the way, in the book of Revelation, it speaks about the, the remember I was telling you about the ten horns, it speaks about in Revelation 13 and 17, it talks about how there will be 10 kings that will come together, 10 nations that will unite together. And then out of them, one will defeat three, and out of them, the Antichrist will come. So we'll see there's a lot of symbolism between the first coming and the second coming. The Antichrist and Ticus Epiphanius. The beast of the 10 horns, you see them in the two situations, in the old and the new. We see even the time of persecution is the same. And we see that after each time, there is a kingdom of God that being established. The first one was established in the heart of the believers. The second one was established in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 27, after, after obviously he saw, after he understood the explanation of the, of the dream, now, he, now the angel is telling him, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people the saints of the most high remember be remember this you become owner of heaven and earth his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him the world tried to give us different image of success and all of it is basically temporary no matter how great it gets until the kingdom of heaven comes there'll be no more war universal peace and the real owners of the kingdom will own will will reign forever will reign forever god is in control with all what's happening it is an everlasting kingdom this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my contents changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Obviously, Daniel, after he has seen all these things, he was troubled because he sees Israel will go through difficult time. The people of God will three, go through difficult time. Some scholars say that probably the three young men at this point died. 
So he had nobody to share this vision with, so he said he kept it in his heart. Some people say that, that he kept it in his heart. This is, this is something that is common when people see vision or see, or see saints. They keep these things in their heart. And he, he was probably given an order to write them down for the next generation, for the next generation. But one thing that I want to just focus on before we go to the next chapter is that we see that a lot of the visions that Daniel have seen are repeated a couple of times. And with chapter 8 also, they will be repeated in another way. And this is to emphasize the events. Remember, one time he says, on, a on my bed while I was sleeping, I saw a dream. Another time he said, I saw a vision. A vision means he was awake. Not every time he was sleeping. Okay? So God is emphasizing these events. It's almost like what happened with Pharaoh. Remember with Pharaoh in the Old Testament? He, he received two different dreams about what's going to happen and the famine that's going to happen. Okay? Also, the one thing that I want us to keep in mind, how, much, how great Daniel is so far. He's so good, so faithful. But also, the fact that his thoughts troubled him shows you that he focused on the negative part of the vision. He focused on the wars and kingdom, overcoming kingdom and wars. And, and he left the beautiful scene when he saw the Ancient of Days and the throne of God and the throne of the saints and the fire coming out of the throne and the saints reigning forever. And this is extremely important for us because in our life, I get to choose to see the work of God in my life. I could, I could focus on the negative and it will trouble my heart. And I could focus on the work of God and the greatness that's happening and it could what? It could fill my heart with joy. You see, what's happening here? Nations are killing nations, but all heaven is sharing all its secret with one man on earth. The world is so occupied with big things but the reality, the mysteries of God are opened and revealed in a small room to a man who is faithful to God. We do not want to follow the worldly understanding of success. We do not want to follow the worldly understanding of reigning and ruling and power. We want to get a to follow the work of God. I'm just going to quickly start uh, chapter 8 and then uh, for a couple of verses and the next time we'll continue. So after chapter 7, Daniel finished this vision. Chapter 8, he's going to see another vision. Okay? And basically, chapter 8, you can just divide it into two sections. From uh, The first two verses are just introduction. From 3 to 14, he sees a vision. And from 15 to 26, the interpretation of the vision. That's basically it. So it's a vision and then it's interpretation. So we'll go through the introduction and next time we'll start going through the vision. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. 
So the third year of the reign of Belshazzar was about 550 BC. And about this time, by the way, what happened, Cyrus, who is the, established the Median Persian Empire. So if you guys remember, we said Nebuchadnezzar had a son, his name is Nabodius. Nabodius has Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a bad king. Nabodius, he starts seeing that Cyrus is trying to form an alliance between Media and Persia, so he started getting worried. Now there's a second big power in the universe that is trying to overcome his own power. So he tried, obviously, to work with Egypt and try to see how can we form an alliance against this world, against this power. So the whole world was anxious about what's going to happen next. The whole world was anxious about what's going to happen next. There is a war that's about to break, and it's a world war. It's like World War I, World War II. Everybody's going to be involved in it. And Daniel, at this point, is about 70 years old. 70 years, by the way. 70 years. Daniel has been faithful to God, prays three times a day, never defiled himself with the food of the king, did not have the temple around him, did not have any spiritual guidance around him. Seventy years, day in and day out. And by the way, this is the definition of faithfulness. It's not about doing something right one time. It's not about reading your Bible for a week. It's not about praying your Agbeya for a month. It's not about attending church just for a holy week. It's about day in and day out. For 70 years, the faithfulness of this man continued. And these, these events, by the way, these visions that he saw, happened before chapter 5. You guys remember what happened in chapter 5? Belshazzar was having a great feast, and the Persian came in eventually and took over, took over the Babylonian. That was the fall of the Babylonian kingdom. So some scholars say that most likely Belshazzar have also heard that Daniel have seen these visions and he predicted the fall of the Babylonian kingdom. So that kind of also what made him might not like Daniel very much. If you guys remember, Daniel was being mistreated by Belshazzar. Anyways, in the second verses, I saw in the vision and it was so happened while I was looking that I was in Shoshin, in Citadel, which is the providence of Alam, and I was in the vision that I was by the river Eulea. So what happened was, while he was, this time he was in a vision. It's almost like think of it as of the hermit being transported, not only, by the way, in space, but also in time. He was transported to see something that will happen in the future. Transported to a place called Alam. Alam is Iran today. And this place became a center for the Persian Empire later on. So he was transported to see the Persian Empire ruling in the future. And he saw the river that is coming in the midst, and he saw the, the, the citadel, which is the, a fortified city on the top of a mountain. He was able to see all this physically transported in time. Physically transported. And this sometimes happens with the saints. They don't only get transported from place to place. Sometimes they get transported beyond time. And, uh, and there's, 
yeah, anyways, there is some, obviously, if you guys, you know, uh, the code of Hammurabi was actually discovered in, Susan, in, in Shoshan. So this, is, this has a lot of archaeological, uh, archaeological evidence. And by the way, the, the, the Media and Persian, this Alam area, this is where Esther was written, Nehemiah was written. They both lived in this area. Okay, so this is where, where a, lot of, a lot of the other books in the Bible are there. The, the river that he saw, the river, this river is actually completely dried now, so it, you know, but at that point it was, it was still there. So he was transported and he saw a real vision. Almost this is what happened with Ezekiel exactly. And now this vision he will see while he was awake and he will start seeing what's going to happen to the kingdom. But there are more details that will be added about what's going to happen to the kingdom that we will see in chapter 8. And we'll continue this next time. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.